I want to, uh, I want to show you a picture, and I, I want to I introduce a thought to you. Uh, but a week and a half ago, I was meeting with one of the brothers here, and he said something that was actually quite profound. He said, we don't get married for love, we get married for wisdom. And, and I, instantly I knew that he was right when he said this, and, and I want to prove he was right by telling you a story and showing you a picture. So you're going to see this picture. And my wife already now knows what I'm going to say. Some of you have heard this story before, and you'll still enjoy it, because this story is proof of the concept that we get married for wisdom. So I don't know. We've been married almost about almost 37 years. So somewhere around 35, 36 years ago, my young wife asked me if she should make me a piece, uh, uh, make me a cheesecake. She knew I loved cheesecake, and she said, would you like me to make you a cheesecake? I said, sure. So my lovely young wife made me a cheesecake because of her love for her young husband. And it was pretty good. And afterwards, she said, how was it? I said, it was pretty good. Now, if it stopped there, that'd be great. But for some reason, and, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, I, had, I, you know, I couldn't pull them back. I have no idea what devil made me say the next step. I said, but it's not as good as what my ex-girlfriend used to make. <laughs> La- laughter's a bit harsh. And so, to this day, she's not made me another cheesecake. Now, I need you to understand that I do have a loving and forgiving wife. She has forgiven me for this. But she sees it as her job, and I think this is, this is an appointment and an anointment from God for me to keep me from stupid. <laughs> and so husbands, I can't speak for wives, but husbands, you need to see your wife as a blessing from God to keep you from stupid. Now, some of you don't like the word stupid. Maybe I use the word foolish. If you don't like that, lack of wisdom. Call it what you want. It still smells the same thing. The interesting thing is, this is 35, 36 years ago. If I had killed her, I'd probably be out of jail now. (laughs) Because for murder, you get about 25 years. For stupid, well, there's no end (laughs) to the consequences for stupid. And by your reaction before, you're all going, darn right. That was just just really stupid. I want to talk about what wisdom is. We're looking at the book of James. We're looking at chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And I want to talk about... I want to talk about what wisdom is and how it differs from knowledge. Knowledge is knowing that your wife's cheesecake, your young wife's cheesecake, is not as good as your ex-girlfriend's cheesecake. That's knowledge. Wisdom is keeping that knowledge to yourself. (laughs) And while that may seem crushingly obvious, I'm going to be talking about a few things this morning that are not as crushingly obvious, and that's why we get ourselves into difficulty. These These are wise words that we're going to look at from our Lord's brother James. Now, as you probably heard, this is what we're carrying on in the series from uh, what the pastors have been preaching on in the book of James. And we're continuing here. And everything you've seen so far is b- basically wisdom because this is a guy who grew up in the house where Jesus was his older brother. He got to see wisdom lived out 24-7. He got to see what it looked like. And so he, he, he understands at a very deep level, at a very personal level, what wisdom looks like and how it differs from simple knowledge. What is wisdom? Well, before I answer that, let's just go to God in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I just thank you for wisdom. Um, James, in his book, in his writing, teaches us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we are to ask you for it. So, Father, I'm asking you for it, and I'm just, I'm encouraging everyone here, Father, just through these words, to ask you for wisdom. Because if we lack it and we ask for it, you've told us that if it is your will, you will grant it. And your very word has taught us that it is your will that we have wisdom. So we know that this is a request that you are happy to grant. So please grant us your wisdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Probably a good time to let you know now, if you don't know me, my name's Peter Boyer. I'm one of the elders here. And that story about the cheesecake might make you question, if you've ever met me before, it might make you question about the choices of this church. <laughs> but that's why I have a wife, to keep me from stupid. Um, I want to talk about what wisdom is. And I, I did a, you know, a bit of looking on the internet. Of course, everyone knows the very famous and, and humorous proverb of uh, Miles Kington. He said, knowledge is that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. We've all seen that one. Um, Wisdom from Jurassic Park. Intelligent men know how to clone a dinosaur. Wise men say, but should we? And if you've seen the Jurassic Park movies, you know we shouldn't. Um, From the U.S. National Rifle Association, knowledge is knowing how to load and fire a gun. Wisdom is knowing when to shoot it and when to keep it in its holster. In general, knowledge is knowing that it, that it is a one-way street. Wisdom says you look both ways anyway. Uh, a pedestrian knows that drivers must yield at intersections. A wise pedestrian knows that if you're laying dead in the ditch, it doesn't matter who had the right of way. I got that one from my father. A smart man believes only half of what he hears. A wise man knows which half. And this last one. I want you to listen carefully to the words. Smart husbands know when they are right and their wife is wrong. A happy husband keeps that information to himself. (laughs) Now you're saying, why didn't you use the word wisdom? There's the first lesson. Happiness and wisdom have an awful lot to do with each other. And this comedian that Debbie and I have enjoyed for a long, long time, a Christian comedian named Jeff Allen, he said one one of the most profound things I ever heard. I just wish I'd heard it about 15 years earlier in my marriage. Because as I say, we've been married for 37 years. About 12 happily. I wish I'd heard this earlier. That, that's okay if you wanted to laugh there. That was okay. Um, he said, after about 10 years of marriage, he, he clued in very quickly. He said, after about 10 years of marriage, I had a decision to make. He said, I had to decide, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Wisdom and happiness, well, they're, they're, they're kind of joined at the hip for reasons that I think we're going to see. After about 20-some-odd years of of failing in that particular aspect of wisdom, I came to the inescapable conclusion that failure is actually an integral part of building wisdom. It's almost like the tuition fee for going to the school of wisdom. You have to fail. We had some friends visiting us uh, who were uh, pastors uh, up in New Brunswick, and they're part of a school, a ministry school, that teaches people how how to actually do ministry. It's not not quite the same as a seminary, but it's how you actually do ministry. And a person cannot graduate from that school until they actually have three recorded failures. I actually think that's quite wise. I think that's actually quite clever. If you don't think that failure uh, is actually the path to wisdom, just read Ecclesiastes. But if you read Ecclesiastes, don't make the mistake of reading halfway. You've got to read to the end. Otherwise, that's just dumb. You'll see why. I want to talk about common sense. Why is common sense so uncommon. 
And in this context, I'm going to say common sense is wisdom. Because whenever we use the term common sense, what we are talking about is wisdom or good sense. You know, someone said didn't have the good sense to do this. We're talking about wisdom. Um, foolishness, as I say, is a lack of wisdom. And I'm going to look at the text from James here. I'm just going to read it in a chunk, and then we're going to take time to kind of explore it a little bit. One of the things that I learned a long time ago, and again, this was a profound proverb for me, and I have made use of this many, many times, especially in my later years, is that the single difference between a wise man and a fool is that a wise man can learn from a fool. So ponder that for a second in your heart. Now let's just read this text that we have from James, starting in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show up by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. In this passage, he basically says there's two kinds of wisdom. One of the kinds of wisdom, and I'm going to call this the first kind of wisdom, he's kind of mocking it a little bit by using the word wisdom, but I get it. I understand because the world that we live in look at some things and say, this is, this is the wise approach to life. And at the end of it, when you stop and you say, okay, I've been pursuing this kind of wisdom, and I'm doing this because all my friends, all my family, everyone I work with, they're pursuing the same things, and this appears to be wisdom. At the end of it, when you examine the emptiness inside of yourself, then you, then you are forced to ask yourself that dirty, dirty, nasty Dr. Phil question, how's it working for me? And when we realize it doesn't, then we're, now what do we do? James here understands that. He grew up having a clinic every day on righteousness, having a personal clinic on holiness, having a personal clinic on what it means to do and know the will of God and what it means to have wisdom from above. And so he's sharing with us his perspective. This is not the first time he's, used, he, he's, he's spoken about wisdom. He says in the opening chapter to James, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. So let's, let's talk about this. So wisdom number one, this is about self. Wisdom number one always asks the question, what's in it for me? This worldly wisdom is no wisdom at all, and it leads to disorder. As he says here, I'm just reading his words, it leads to disorder and virtually all forms of evil. Pride and selfishness lie at the root because it comes from the devil himself. Now, I actually thought about this for quite a bit. When I first started thinking about putting this message together, I, I kind of zoned in on that and uh, kind of camped out on that little passage for a while, and I thought, how much do I spend on this? And I've come to the conclusion, I've already said everything I want to say about wi- wisdom number one. I'm assuming you're here on a Sunday morning because either you are walking with the Lord or you're curious about what it means to walk with the Lord. You're curious about what this Christianity thing is. You want to draw closer to God either for the first time or you want to draw closer to God in the walk that you have right now. Either way, you're here because maybe you're looking for something a little different than what you're getting out there. You already know the things that he just says under this category of wisdom number one. You already know 
what doesn't work. But what I also know is that there's this thing inside of us that is happily delusional to choose the times and the places where we don't listen to that. It's knowledge up here. It's great, but it's what we actually live with. And so I just want to move on. I just want to move from that now. I want to look at this other kind of wisdom, wisdom number two. Wisdom number two is about others. It's what's in it for them. This is quite countercultural. Um, this is heavenly wisdom, as, as he says. It's, it's, from, it's, it's from above. It is most uncommon. And we know that because whenever we are out there with the general population and we act these ways, we sometimes get very strange looks. And I have had times, and I'm sure you've had times, where someone will challenge your actions or your motives. Why are you doing this? Why are you that way? There's got to be something in it for you. The thought that we could take an action, we could have a motive, we can have an intention that is not based on self is just, well, it's just otherworldly. Right. But it's so abnormal. It's so countercultural. Nobody can actually believe it. And this is the message, this is the good news that Jesus brought, that we don't have to give in to those baser instincts, that it's all about us, that it's all about pride and selfishness and ultimately rebellion of God. What's in it for them? This is the wisdom from above. Here's part of the challenge with this, and I've, I've learned this over the years. This is a harder one to sell. It's very easy for me to sell something to you if I can make it very clear right now what's in it for you. The whole world of sales is based on that. Help the person who is about to buy see what's in it for them. But I'm also not naive enough to think that the New Testament doesn't go there. Oh, oh no. Jesus dangles a pretty big carrot in front of people all the time. He's saying, you know what? Here's your motive. You've you got a hope. You're going to be spending forever with God. There's your hope. And your hope is what builds your faith. And your faith is ultimately what lives itself out through love. It perfects itself through love. But it starts with hope. First chapter of Colossians gives us the order. The faith and the love that we have spring from the hope. So the hope comes first. So that's the carrot. And so I'm going to dangle a carrot in front of you that's not what the guy at the store will dangle if he's trying to sell you something. This is, this is, this is not something you can see. It's, it's just kind of out there. There's a hope. And I just have to hope that you grab onto that, that you accept that as your motivation because everything that follows then becomes a whole lot easier if you see that, which cannot be seen, a lot more clearly than the things in front of you which you can see. It's countercultural because it leads to humility. This is what he says at the beginning. He says, Let him show his wisdom, his understanding, by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. What's humility? Humility is that attitude that says, I am no better than you. I am no more deserving than you. There's no sense of entitlement that I have that trumps your needs. In fact, I need to do everything in my power to go out of my way to elevate what's important to you above mine. Not because you actually are more important, because I'm important in this too, and I'm hoping you see that from your side, because I'm one of them from your perspective. The problem is that we are so driven at the level of kind of the, the, the baser, fleshly, worldly things. We're so driven by looking after ourselves that it's very easy 
to slip back into that. And so I think this is why we see the language of, of Paul when he writes about Jesus in Philippians, why we see the language of James. He's basically pushing others. Put them first because you're going to slip back into yourself and your self-focus anyway. But this is the wisdom that's from above. It, it, it basically is their needs have to trump your needs. Your need, their needs have to trump your needs. This uncommon wisdom from above is pure because God is pure, because God is good. And all the things that you see follow from here are about others. Now, what's interesting is that this, this entire passage, verses 13 to 18, is 100% about how we are to relate to other people, relationships. My wife is a counselor, and <clears throat> probably 80 or 90% of the, of the people that she, she tries to help are dealing with relational issues. Many of them will show up with problems that may look like they stem just within themselves, but ultimately it creates relational challenges for them because of, of the self-focus. This is an uncommon kind of wisdom. It's why common sense is not so common. It seeks the best for others. I, did a, I, I had this idea um, a couple of nights ago how much of the book of James is actually focused on others. And I went through just my own, kind of my own quick count. I'm estimating somewhere between 60 to 70% of the book of James is completely about how we relate to other people. Why is he spending so much time on that? It's because that's really all that matters. At the end of the day, that's really all that matters. Common sense is great, but developing Christian sense is best. Wisdom is good. It's really good to know when you're stepping out to look both ways, even though the science is it's only one way. Because you know that there will be somebody out there that possibly is not paying attention to that sign. That's wisdom. That just helps you to survive or helps you to avoid some missteps. But the kind of wisdom that I'm talking about that's from above actually comes with a list of things to think about and a list of things to do. Let's see exactly what it is. I'm going to get you to go back one slide. The wisdom that comes from above, uh, from heaven, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So I'll just go and do that stuff. We read the words... I read the words, and I, I know if, if, if you're normal and I'm normal, and I don't presume for a second that either of us are normal. But if we're normal, we will read the words, we'll go, yeah, that's a good idea, yeah, I should be more like that, and then we keep going, because we don't stop and, and spend some time there and say, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Christian sense, wisdom from above, looks different. And you say, well, first you've got to know stuff. Yeah, you've got to know stuff. The Pharisees had all kinds of run-ins with Jesus because he was constantly pointing out that they had all kinds of knowledge, but they had no wisdom. They knew what the Bible said. Their word, what we would look at as the 39 books of the Old Testament, Pharisees had that committed to memory. To memory. They didn't just know where stuff was. It was in their heads. And they could quote it. Problem is, they would also make other people feel that they were not living up to that standard because other people couldn't do the same thing. So the Pharisees were very quick to say, I know more than you, and you know what, you, you're screwing up over here, and you're screwing up over there, and they're making people feel bad, being very legalistic, bringing down condemnation and judgment on people because they weren't living up to the standard. Jesus shows up, more than a Pharisee. He doesn't just know the word. According to John, 
chapter 1. He is the Word. He knows it. He created it. He's living it. He lives it every single day. And James knows that he lives it every single day as he's writing this letter. He is the Word. And so how Jesus is different from the Pharisees is that Jesus looks at people and his heart breaks because he knows the same thing the Pharisees know, that they're screwing up, they're missing the mark. But Jesus doesn't stop there and just says, you know what, you've got to do this, this, and this. Because there's no grace there. Jesus says, you know what, you've got to do this, this, and this. But I know that you have no idea how to do that right now, so take me by the hand and let me show you. That's the difference. Right? That's the difference. We have in churches now, and, and even, even in workplaces, we have things called accountability groups. Accountability groups are really great. Two or three people get together, and maybe I'm sitting there with Jerry and Mac, and, and the three of us have an accountability group. So we get together, and Mac says, uh, you know what, I'm really struggling with this thing, and this thing, and this thing. And Jerry says, well, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> okay, and I'm going, Jerry's right, man. You need to stop, you need to stop doing that. And so, uh, yeah, God bless you. You know what? <laughs> there's, that, that's, there's no grace, right? Grace is that external help that comes in not because you deserve it, but because you need it. And every single one of us need help. There isn't one of us alive who doesn't need help. Even guys who are still under the penalty of stupid. Actually, to be honest with you, when I see a piece of cheesecake now, to me, there's nothing harsh there. I know that she's forgiven me. To me, that is a sign of the covenant between my wife and I that she will always protect me from stupid. Sometimes it's good to play little tricks in your head. Jesus shows mercy. He shows grace. Because he knows that we can't do that which he did without his help. And so he says, I will help. This is the kind of help that we need to be for each other. Right? Every one of us struggles. Not a single one of us has a monopoly on all of the things of God. We all need each other. And if we can learn to appropriate this kind of wisdom... Not just stuff in our head, but stuff that we're actually doing and living. If we can actually do that, that is a game changer for life. That will help you to live in a God-honoring, life-affirming way. And the people around you will pick up on that. And they will start saying, you know what, this is a person that I can learn from. But we all need help. We all need to help each other. Okay, I, I want to show you something. You turn to the person beside you. See this one? There's a fill-in-the-blank here. Turn to the person beside you and say what the missing word is. So find the person. First of all, don't, don't just blurt it out. Identify your person. And then on the count of three, we're all going to say it together. Practice makes... I heard some of you that actually got the right answer. See, we all grew up with practice makes perfect. That's not the right answer. Because then that makes you want to strive for perfection. And perfection is a neurotic pursuit. None of us are going to get there. We're made perfect in Jesus, but our efforts will always fail because that doesn't help us to change. What helps us to change is this. Practice makes permanent. And by practice, it means you do it over and over and over again. So you literally change the wiring of your brain so that you become more automatic. You, you can almost go into automation mode you start doing the things that God wants you to do because you've practiced them. Earlier it talked about the evil practices, things that we are practicing. I'm guessing that most of us aren't doing evil practices because we're sitting down saying, now what's my game plan here? I need, a, I need to map out a training strategy for myself here. I'm going to practice these evil things. No, it just happens. 
in order to break that, we actually have to have a different kind of a strategy. So uh, I, found out, uh, I found out a week ago in the, in the e-news I went to the congregation that uh, I've been given a promotion. I didn't know this, but I'm now the director of discipleship. Didn't know that. So that completely changed the entire way I wanted to deliver this message because there's a new responsibility on me. And apparently it comes with some wisdom that I'm scrambling very quickly to attain. Um, practice what? First of all, the idea of, of, of trying doesn't work. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's great for learning how to ride a bicycle. It's not great for changing the way you think or changing how you behave. It just doesn't work. And neuroscientists can actually give us a lot of useful information on that. They say, no, train. You have to train. You have to practice things intentionally, on purpose, to actually do it on purpose. So what does that look like? What, practice what? Um, in, in James chapter 1, he says, be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Okay, practice that. <laughs> um, if, if you're looking for ideas. Um, intelligence may know what to say, but wisdom knows whether or not to say it. Maybe you need to practice some intentional silence. I probably shouldn't do that right now. That would be inappropriate. Um, you have to train like an athlete. Look at a passage here from, uh, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, some people, some people want to say, well, that's not, that's not training like an athlete. Actually, I, I actually think it is because the Greek word here for training is the same word that we get the English word gymnasium from. It is that kind of training. And the context here is about the training of an athlete. We need to put that same kind of training into our, into our life. The problem is, and you all know this, you may have never heard the words put this way, but the problem is that we are all born as um, pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding creatures because we have this animal side to us. I know that sounds like a very dim view of humanity. But that's why Jesus came to rescue us from that, the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And so if our natural tendency is to seek pleasure and our natural tendency is to avoid pain, then the, the only word that comes to my mind is the word indolent. We are indolent. We will do anything to avoid pain. I am so committed to having no pain. You know the idea of no pain, no gain? I'm starting to understand that. Because most of my life, I was happy with the idea of no pain, no pain. <laughs> I am so committed to the idea of having no pain that I'm even willing to put today's pain off to tomorrow, knowing full well that when I get to tomorrow, tomorrow's pain will be worse than it would have been today, but that's okay because tomorrow maybe I'll be able to cope because right now, I just need no pain. The whole concept behind training and changing of our mind comes with the acceptance through humility that I can do better and he can help me to do better, but I have work to do. One of the problems within Christianity is that we, we're all on the spectrum, right? We're somewhere on the spectrum. And one end of the spectrum, it's just like I, I have to work really, 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 really hard to do everything I possibly can to make God happy. Ah, wrong answer. And at the other end of the spectrum, God loves me and anything he needs changed in my life, he'll just change it. Ah, wrong answer. There's work to do, Right? It all comes from him. He blesses us with the ability to change ourselves. He blesses us with the, with, the, with the gift of process. But we have to do the work. And what does that work look like? Training is intentional and goal-oriented. We have to do it on purpose. So here's an idea. 
do an opinion fast for one week. For one week, don't give anyone your opinion. Yeah, God bless you with that one. Um, do a listening journal for one week. Every time you hear somebody say something, make notes so that later you can actually reproduce what it was they said. In order to do that, you have to stop using this. I'm not saying these are the things that you need. I'm just saying that these are ideas because quite often people have no idea where to start. Let's pick a, let's pick a place to start. We go back to that passage in, in verse 17. He gives a, a kind of a big, uh, a big laundry list here. I've, I've, I've just picked one word out. Be considerate. What, what does it mean to be considerate? What does it look like? Can, can you practice it? Do you know how to practice it? Sometimes the best way to understand something is by, by looking at the opposite. What does it mean to be inconsiderate? I used to work with, uh, with an organization and one of the directors, he was just very inconsiderate. And I, I mentioned one day, it was very, he was frustrating everybody because he was making plans, uh, you know, autonomously and he wasn't telling anybody anything. And I spoke to his executive assistant one day and I said, like, this is, this is crazy, making everybody crazy. He's very considerate. She said, no, he's a wonderful man. I said, great, he's a wonderful man, but he's inconsiderate. Here's what she said. She says, no, it's just that he's so busy, he doesn't take time to consider what other people want. <laughs> I just wanted to give her a dictionary at that point. That's what being inconsiderate is. What does it look like for you to be inconsiderate? Have you considered what she's going to feel before stupid comes out of your mouth? Have you considered looking at the clock knowing, okay, you know what, summertime, there's not a second service, I can just preach as long as I want. Is it considerate for the people who are downstairs working and they figure, okay, who's talking today? I know how long he's going to speak, but if I go longer than that, then they have to scramble to come up with extra lesson plans for that extra bit of time. That's not very considerate. What does it look like? How do you practice that? What's next? What's next for you? What's your next step? Wisdom is not our pursuit. God's wisdom is our pursuit. God's wisdom breeds into us humility, the humility of Christ Jesus. What is your next step? Now, there's quite a, quite a variety of people with different backgrounds here, so I don't know what it is that your next step is. Maybe, let me put this in the context of my role as director of discipleship. A disciple is just simply someone who follows Jesus, who is being changed by Jesus, and who is committed to the work and mission of Jesus. And so as a discipler, my job is to help everybody move in that direction if they wish to do that. Maybe your next step might be that you can uh, find someone to help you to begin a relationship with God. Maybe your next step is to find someone, and by the way, there's a theme here, is to find someone to help you. Don't do this on your own. Uh, Maybe find someone to uh, help you deepen your relationship with God. Maybe your next step is to find someone to learn how to ask God for wisdom and then teach you how to ask God for wisdom. Maybe your next step is to find someone to help you to learn how to practice something like being considerate as a human being. Because if you actually do that, I'll tell you right now, your family will appreciate it. And so will everybody else. My friends, the goal is not just simply to become wise. The goal is to have the wisdom of God because that's what changes us.